BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it is Friday, November 3rd. I had a look because I've lost complete track of time. Time has no meaning anymore. <laughs> uh, and uh, so here's the headline story that's just constantly breaking uh, new with uh, updates this is that latest uh, headline I've got from uh, the Washington Post. Uh, no temporary ceasefire without return of hostages, Netanyahu says. Of course, I'm talking about the onslaught in Gaza uh, where uh, Israeli forces are well, have invaded uh, Gaza and are pounding it. Um, in what's been now a month long, it's been a full month, good Lord, of um, uh, open fighting there. And... Um, uh, Blinken pushes Israelis for, quote, humanitarian pauses in Gaza. And uh, this will be our opening um, new discourse with a distinguished guest. And I'll allow, allow him uh, to introduce himself. And we'll get right down to it. Take it away, distinguished guest. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. I'm uh, David Ferris, Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University here in Chicago, the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And, uh, Columnist at Slate and Newsweek. So um, eager to dive into the news, Ben. Let's roll. All right, let's roll. Uh, we will get to uh, David's excellent column about Speaker Mike Johnson, a name that has never been invoked in the Ben Jarofsky show until right now. I think this, uh, at least in my conversations with David Ferris. So I could say, speaking for myself, I never saw Mike Johnson coming as the next uh, House Speaker. Uh, David wrote an excellent column about him and what that means. Uh, for American politics. But before we do, let's just continue with our conversation from the last time on your show uh, about um, the war in the Middle East. And I urge absolutely everyone uh, to listen to that uh, David Ferris deep dive uh, on the uh, struggle between uh, Israel and Palestine. Um, so ceasefire versus humanitarian pause I'd love for you to riff on this, uh, David, in terms of what is the distinction? What do people mean when uh, they say one or the other? I 
has a moment of confession, been pleading for a ceasefire from the moment uh, from the moment the first bomb fell, I guess, uh, in um, retaliation by Israel for uh, the slot, uh, the onslaught on October seventh uh, by Hamas when they killed fourteen hundred Israelis. Uh, and now I understand there's a distinction between a ceasefire and a humanitarian pause, which I'm sort of grappling with. So why don't you uh, help us understand this? Um, sure. Yeah, the, the distinction is fairly straightforward. I think um, in, a, in a humanitarian pause, um, the, the warring parties, um, in this case, it would really it would really be just the one. It would just be the one party, which would be Israel. Um, would stop its bombardment and its and its military operations for a period of time to allow aid workers, aid convoys, aid flights, um, you know, uh, just humanitarian efforts to get basic supplies um, and food to the citizens of Gaza um, who are kind of cut off from the whole world right now, right? I mean, Egypt is not letting them in on the southern border. Um, Israel is evacuating uh, forced evacuations of large parts of the northern Gaza Strip, and uh, millions of civilians are, are caught in the crossfire here. Don't have adequate water, electricity, food, um, just you know, just sort of the basic staples of human existence um, are very very hard to come by for people in Gaza right now. And so, a humanitarian pause would essentially say to Israel, "Can you stop for like five hours um, so that we can get some supplies in?" We'll leave and we'll let you know when we're leaving and then you may resume whatever it is that you were doing. Okay. So that's a humanitarian pause. A ceasefire is, a, is something a little bit broader, right? A ceasefire suggests that there is a political process at play between the two parties, uh, between the two warring parties that would potentially lead to the ceasefire becoming a peace treaty or some sort of settlement that would stop the fighting. Okay. So, um, the, I guess the shorthand for this is a humanitarian pause assumes that there is not going to be a near-term resolution to whatever whatever is causing the hostilities. Um, a ceasefire presumes that there is a path to to stopping fighting on a more permanent or at least a medium-term basis. Right? Um, that is like we're going to hold a cease, stop killing each other right now because um, the people who who sign the checks and order the troops in are talking to each other in the hopes of ending this. Okay. Um, and I think it's telling that, that the Biden administration is only talking about a humanitarian pause here, um, which says to me that, n- that no one in the Biden administration, at least publicly, um, is leaning on Israel to seek a, a negotiated settlement, either uh, not of the whole conflict, I mean, just of this, right? Um just of the fallout from the from the October seventh attacks by Hamas, it doesn't seem like anybody in Biden world um, has any intention to to kind of cajole Israel into uh, a negotiated settlement with Hamas. Nor is it clear, like who like, you know who are you going to talk to on the Palestinian side? I don't know. The whole thing's a mess, right? Um, but by not using the by not using the language of ceasefire, they are they are communicating the idea that this will be like a very temporary break um in the in the fighting to to deliver some human humanitarian supplies to people in gaza um but to, to you know my in my humble opinion if it's if it's not a long ceasefire and there's no political process behind it you know you're, you're just putting a band-aid on the wound which is better than nothing but um 
certainly does not say to Israel, you've, you've crossed some red lines here and we need you to pull back. I think mean, no one has told them that yet, as far as I know. So when a, an American politician uses the word uh, or uses the phrase uh, pause, humanitarian pause, uh, <clears throat> they're sending a message, a political, they're speaking in political talk, a political speak, uh, a special language that requires translation. So take a deeper dive in exactly what message uh, the, they are sending when they say humanitarian pause. Right. The message being sent by, by quote unquote humanitarian pause is that we support your general war aims. We, you know, we support your decision to invade Gaza with a ground force. Um, we, we support your decision um, to, to hit Hamas targets. Um, you know, we've asked you gently and nicely to try to kill as few civilians as possible. But fundamentally, um, we're on your team here. Uh, we we want to see you succeed. Um, but we, you know, the level of civilian suffering in Gaza right now is starting to cause problems for us politically. Um, so if you could just let, like, just let the aid convoys in for a few hours um, so that we could feed and water people before we resume killing them, that would be great. And we really appreciate it. <laughs> um, it is to me, it's a it's a bargaining point taken from the position of weakness. Right. Like um, it, it's either it's either said from a position of weakness, political weakness. Um, or it's said from a position of, of approval of what's happening in Gaza right now. I'm not sure which one is more disturbing to me. Okay. Um, and it's, it's just, um, I think it's a failure of political leadership at the highest levels. I think it's driven by fear of political fallout. Like if, you know, if Biden calls for a ceasefire in a political process, everybody's going to be like, you love Hamas, Hamas lover, you know? Um, and sometimes you just have to make the hard choices to save lives um, and worry about the political fallout later. Okay. Calling for a ceasefire doesn't mean you're like a, you know, a college student, like tearing down pictures of Israeli hostages and, and being like, let's, you know, let's wipe out the Jews. <laughs> like, I mean, if there's not, if there is a middle ground here, you have to stand up for it. Right? You have to seek out the middle ground. You have to stake it out. You have to claim it for yourself. Um, and you have to say like, look, of, of course, what happened on October 7th deserves some kind of response. We even support eradicating Hamas from the Gaza Strip, but the way you're going about it is unacceptable, right? You can't just ethnically cleanse the entire territory and then be like, well, we got rid of Hamas by getting rid of everyone, you know, because that's where, that's where it looks like this is headed right now. Um, and if it's not headed there, the, the evidence is indistinguishable from it, you know? Um, and, and for a variety of reasons, Biden's just like not willing to do that. Um, and, and it's like... <laughs> It's just, a, it's just such an inversion of the patron-client relationship, right? Um, we talk about Israel as an ally. Um, Israel is dependent upon the United States, not entirely dependent upon the United States, but gets a lot of, um, gets a lot of military aid from the United States. That should put us in a position of strength in terms of, of communicating red lines to the Israeli leadership. Like, these are the things that are acceptable for you to do, and these are the things that it is not acceptable for you to do. Um, and those red lines have been communicated insufficiently or inconsistently or not at all. I'm not in the room, so I don't know. Um, from, but from the press reports that I've read, it's like American officials show up there and they're like, hey, what if you kill fewer Palestinian civilians? <laughs> um, that'd be cool. And then the Israelis are like, no, thank you. We're not going to do that. Um, 
and the killing goes on, right? Uh, and it, the killing is going to go on until someone stops it. Um, and the the only entity in the world with the power to stop it really is is the United States government, for better or for worse. Um, and you know, Biden doesn't want to get into a big tussle with the Israeli leadership um, twelve months before a presidential election. I, I understand. You know, you can look at the at the politics of it and be like, "Man, this is tough." Like, I get it, right? Um, but that doesn't excuse silence and, and complicity with this, right? Like, nothing that happened on October seventh justifies mass killing Palestinians. It just doesn't. And I've I've spoken very clearly about what I think about what happened on October seventh and what I think about of Hamas, right? doesn't excuse what's happening right now. I urge everybody, uh, if you want to hear uh, David Ferris on this topic, to go listen to the last conversation we had, because he did speak very clearly and very passionately about that. Um, yeah, you talk about the political fallout. Uh, and this is a conversation that I've been having all, all week to one degree or another with various guests, the political fallout. And I always say the same thing. I feel a little queasy talking about the political fallout while uh, this onslaught is happening. And um, so many Palestinians are being murdered. Uh, and it's like, I don't know, there's just something really raw uh, and just, just upsetting about talking about, well, how will this affect Michigan and the Electoral College, you know, which is, uh, I saw an article in the New York Times about to that effect, you know, Arab Americans in Dearborn may go vote Republican. I'm like, wow, we didn't waste any time with this one. Uh, you know, <laughs> how's it going to affect the all-important? Um, but there is a trend uh, that I've talked about on this show a lot, and uh, I hear a lot about this because uh, I am of the leftist persuasion, um, and uh, I'm always I'm surrounded by lefties. And um, more than one has told me, I am not voting for Joe Biden. It's an absolute declaration. I am not voting for Joe Biden. Um, and so... Uh, so what's your sense of the early stages of the political fallout in this country? Sure. This is a lose-lose political situation for Joe Biden. There's no question. Um, I'm not sure that there's a line that he could walk here that wouldn't cost him support with some group. right? And so if you're in the White House uh, and you are presented with a political situation in which taking one action is going to alienate some critical block of your supporters and take another action is going to alienate some different critical block of your supporters. Um, you know, in, in my mind, that's a, that's an opportunity for you to say, well, I'm just going to do what's right. I'm going to do what's right. And, and the fallout will be the fallout. I can't make a decision here that will please everyone. Okay. This is politics. Um, and so the, the calculus should be like, what, what is the right thing to do, right? Like, what is the what is the path that will lead um, to to the least amount of killing? Um, what's the path that might lead to a, a better, brighter future for for Israel and the Palestinians? Um, and not like, how do I minimize my losses a year from now? Like, that's like if that's the if that's the only calculus at play here, um, you're, you're going to sleepwalk into disaster. Now, I have seen polling, very clear polling. The Biden standings with with Arab Americans and um, and American Muslims and uh, young people has continued to decline over the past month, right? and that is a direct consequence of of the Biden administration's decision to um, to show its kind of unwavering and I think somewhat uncritical support for Israel during this time. Now, any deviation from that line is going to cost Biden support among 
independents who are, are heavily pro-Israel. It's going to cost Biden some more um, amongst older people. It'll cost him support um, from even liberal American Jews. Okay, there's no there's no way to thread the needle here, in which everybody will be like, "Man, that guy did the right thing. He's great." <laughs> you know, it's he's in a tough spot. He really is in a tough spot. Um, but I do think there's this is a I, this is a point where you just you got to forget about 2024 for a minute. And just be like, I need you need to manage the crisis. The quicker you get the crisis managed, um, the quicker people will stop thinking about it and acting upon it in terms of how they vote next year. I mean, I, I remember, and people are emotional creatures, Ben. I mean, I remember swearing off Barack Obama sometime in 2010 <laughs> when he, when they did this surge in Afghanistan. I was like, I'm done with this guy. You know, this is exactly what I voted. I voted for him to not have this happen. Right. And there he is, like increasing troop levels in Afghanistan and still using this dumb line uh, about how Afghanistan was the important theater all along. We messed up. By, we got diverted by Iraq. And it's like, no, neither thing was smart. You know, and I was so frustrated with him. I was like not voting for him. And, if, you know, I'm like, come on, like I can't, at the end of the day, I come around. Right. Like most of these people who are like, ah, I'm done with Joe Biden are not going to go out and vote for Donald Trump. OK, um, the question is whether people will be so dispirited that I think that they stay home. Um, and that's a real risk. I mean, there were already a lot of red flags um, about support for Biden among key Democratic constituencies. Um, young people, I remember we talked a few weeks ago about, you know, the website where you play around with um, how different sub-demographics voted. Um, and if you just, you dial down young people's support, like three points, it's like a Democratic apocalypse. <laughs> you know, like, we, like they just can't afford to bleed out large numbers of young voters. Um, and so at a certain point, I think that Biden has to recalibrate here, um, and say like, we are really taking heat, um, not just from like the left, right? I mean, the Biden is taking heat from anyone who's concerned about the humanitarian consequences of what's happening. Right. Um, and if on October 7th, you stood for the principle of civilian innocence and war, um, I just don't see how you can be happy with what's happening right now. Right. Because a lot of a lot of very innocent civilians, Palestinian civilians are dying right now. Um, and that's a bad that's a bad look for the Biden administration. It's a bad look for the Biden administration with with key allies. And I think they've already done enough with the with the groups that might have wavered um, like three weeks ago if Biden hadn't come out strongly for Israel. It, like in my book, if there was a strategic purpose behind that decision, it was to shore up support among some of those groups. So that when push comes to shove, they can exert influence on Israel to, to stop the killing um, or to prosecute the, more, or the war uh, in a more strategic or limited fashion. Okay. If, if it was never about buying that influence and, and that breathing room, I don't know, then it's just this is just what they want. Okay. Um, and I, it just that's very disappointing if at the highest echelons of the Biden administration, there is total indifference to civilian suffering. I don't actually think that that's the case, but they have to make that pivot sooner rather than later. Yeah. And uh, again, this is really, uh, we'll, we'll switch over to uh, the house speaker because in many ways, what I'm about to say next is, is a bridge to that discussion. Uh, but I uh, receive, as I've told, said many times in this show, uh, an endless, uh, su endless supply of uh, Republican solicitations via via email because I never uh, turn any down. I just, I'm curious to see what's, what they're putting out there. Folks, if you want to see what the Republican side have to say about uh, what's going on in, uh, in Gaza, it is actually 
more extreme support uh, for just unlimited bombing, unlimited uh, murder by uh, the Israeli government. Uh, so I, I know when I speak to um, a lot of uh, my lefty friends, they, they really, they're like oblivious to what Republicans are saying, uh, to what Trump is doing. Uh, a lot of them, most of their anger, e- e- even not on this issue alone, is directed at uh, the Democrats. And so it's always this fragile, it's like this fragile support, to put it mildly, and it, that, that is very in, in danger of being broken and snapped at any given moment uh, for a Democrats or Democratic elected officials. Uh, and a compl- kind of a disregard for whatever, like January 6th doesn't matter that much. It, I've come to realize that it's just like a different worldview. Um, so this, I don't even think if they, they're paying attention to what Republicans are saying right now, but I know you are because you study this stuff uh, and it's pretty extreme in my opinion, your thoughts on the difference between if there is a difference between a democratic attitude toward what's going on uh, in Gaza with the, and a Republican one. Well, sure. I mean, what you see from, from the right wing in this country is just pure sort of like anti-Palestinian hatred and, and racism, you know, like the heritage foundation put out a tweet about like, well, Egypt, Egypt doesn't want to let in the Palestinians. So you shouldn't either. Right. Like the Palest, like there's a, there's a way that the far right speaks about the Palestinians as just like terrible people who deserve their fate. And they're super unapologetic about this. Okay. Um, in the early two thousands, like during the second intifada um, and early in the Bush administration, uh, you remember there was a guy named Daniel pipes. who was, um, who was uh, in, involved in sort of like far right um, Israel policymaking. And he had a line that became like very popular in Republican circles and he was like, what, what needs to happen is the Palestinians need to accept that they are a defeated people. Um, and once they accept that they are a defeated people, Israel can impose their terms on them, right? And then at least like the, the mass suffering can stop. Okay. Um, and on the right, there's just this sense they're like, well, the Palestinians turned down the deal in 2000, so they deserve what's coming to them. Um, and you're like... Um, Half of Palestinians weren't even alive in 2000, right? Um, when when Arafat did whatever he did at, at Camp David, right? Um, and so you're you're essentially going to hold the entire civilian population of Gaza um, a- accountable for the actions of Hamas. And they're like, well, they elected them. And I mean, it's like in 2006 they elected them, right? Like 17 years ago by a narrow majority. Okay, there is no sense in which the civilian population of Gaza right now is responsible for what Hamas did. Um, but to the right, they don't care, right? To the right, Palestine, Hamas, the whole thing is just their equivalent. Right? Like they think all Palestinians just want to like murder Jews in the streets and they just don't care. Um, and as a consequence, there is a massive campaign of dehumanization um, against Palestinians. Uh, I've always called it like the last acceptable form of racism in America. It's also anti-Muslim stuff. Um, that is just extremely common, uh, not just on the far right, but in like mainstream Republican circles. Um, anti-Muslim bigotry, anti-Palestinian bigotry is, is, um, uh, it's, it's not just a fringe phenomenon. It's like totally acceptable way to speak in public about these things. Like is Mitch McConnell going to do it? No. Right. But like the mainstream organs of Republican thought right now, like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but like the heritage foundation, which was like a mainline traditional Republican think tank 
has been taken over by these like nutty people um, uh, for whom politics is just performance in theater. Uh, and it, the Heritage Foundation has put out a lot of like really repulsive stuff about Israel and Palestine. Um, stuff that's ne- stuff that's never going to bring lasting peace to this region, Ben. You know what I mean? Um, and so when Democrats talk about it, uh, it is it is generally not using a language that deprives Palestinians of their humanity. Okay? Um, at the same time, Democrats, mainstream Democrats, do frequently talk about this conflict as if only Israel has security interests. Right. As if only Israel has existential threats to its existence, as if only Israel needs to be reassured about X, Y, and Z before a peace treaty can be signed. Um, and, and Democrats, in my mind, are just like, again, traditional mainstream Democrats is changing a little bit on the progressive left. Um, but uh, there's never been much interest in like providing the same things for the Palestinians that you're providing for the Israelis. That is, um, you know, security, humanity, rights, um, an actual functioning state. Like if you think back 20, 25 years, the way people would talk about a Palestinian state, they're like, well, obviously it'll be disarmed um, and Israel will control the borders and blah, 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 blah. Right. And it's like, well, that's okay, fine. But that's why there's no deal. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, that, that kind of, that kind of thinking is also endemic in democratic circles where, um, because it's obvious who has whose ear here, you know, um, it's obvious to me, who Democrats are afraid of in electoral politics and who they are not afraid of. Okay? And I think that some of this stuff that you're hearing, uh, you know, about the Arabs in Dearborn and collapse of support, Arab Americans and Muslim, uh, Muslim Americans, <clears throat> is those groups being like, well, <laughs> you know, we could probably play this game too. Okay. Um, the problem is that they have nowhere to go. <laughs> In terms of a political entity that's like more favorable to their interests than Democrats, there's nowhere to go. Like a like a pro-Israel, like a generally center-left person who's pro-Israel, um, if they want someone who's like more pro-Israel than a Democrat, they have a place to go. Right? Um, if you want a major American political party that's like more pro-Palestine than the Democrats, unfortunately, you do not have a choice. Okay. Um, and, and that is a, that is a pickle that those communities have been in for a long time. Um, and the politics of this have gotten way uglier over the last month. Um, as I think, um, particularly some groups on the left have, you know, like used language that is not helpful. Um, I think a lot of liberal American Jews are feeling like, um, people didn't care about what happened and like people left immediately to being like, don't bomb Gaza um, without really like taking in the full magnitude of what had actually happened on the seventh um, to the, to the, you know, similarly innocent Israeli civilians who were murdered in these attacks. So I think I'm babbling a little bit here, um, <clears throat> but uh, that's, that's kind of how I see it in terms of the two parties. Yeah. And that was, um, I like to point out uh, it's the same <laughs> On on like a dozen issues, nowhere to go, and uh, I say this all the time as a lefty in America: there is nowhere to go. Think of every single problem we face in our country: healthcare, nowhere to go because Republicans are worthless. <laughs> all they wanted to do was destroy Obamacare. That's it. They're utterly worth. Race relations, 
They're worthless. All they want to do is rewrite history so that slavery was actually a good thing uh, for black people. They just don't appreciate it. The environment, please Please show me the Republican position on global. No, they deny that it exists as a as a thing. They say it's a Chinese host. What else? Abortion. Nikki Haley is propped up as the great like moderate on this issue. She's totally against any kind of abortion rights. She just says, I what? Oh, I feel sorry for women. I don't know what she says. She, she somehow or other cloaks her vehement op- opposition to abortion in like a tone of voice that is supposed to send a message, you know, oh, I care about you, even though I'm denying your rights. Union rights, David, union rights. If you're for union rights, if you're collective bargaining rights, where do you go if not for the Democrat? Where do you go? Please explain to me. Where, name a Republican. You, We talked about this at that debate. When the issue of UAW, by the way, UAW did pretty well in their uh, strike. Remember that when they were called on to to show their support? I think they were in Michigan or maybe they were in Wisconsin. They were uh, in some important industrial Midwest state where signaling support for unions would have been beneficial. Not one of them. (laughs) Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. (laughs) Couldn't do it. So so let's just add... Let's just add the Middle East to the list. You know what I'm saying? Where do you go? Oh, my God. And they'll say a third party, and I go, good luck with that. Um, all right. Uh, let's transition to your column, which, man, another – this guy should you just quit academia and go into column writing, all right? Uh, <laughs> that's why I mess around. Uh, it was a column uh, that you – I can't remember who you wrote it for. Uh, Newsweek, my bad. Uh, about uh, Mike Johnson, a man that I knew, I probably could have said there was a congressman named Mike Johnson, maybe, I don't know, uh, before he was elected speaker. I certainly didn't see it coming. Uh, I will read to you uh, what you wrote about uh, uh, Mike Johnson, who's now the head of the uh, Republican caucus in Congress, so he's the Speaker of the House, just two, one person away from being president. Uh Johnson wasn't a reluctant participant, but rather an eager entrepreneur in Donald Trump's effort to destroy American democracy by illegally installing himself in power for another term. He spearheaded the effort to write an amicus brief in support of the Texas lawsuit that sought to have election results in four battleground states thrown out. Johnson has never walked back or softened his position that the 2020 election was stolen by big city Democrats in a handful of states who weirdly forgot to rig their own ballot races. Uh, That means that Republicans have chosen as their highest profile elected leader a man who, if given the opportunity, would erase U.S. democracy from the face of the earth to ensure that Republicans get to stay in power. Take it away, David. Go a little further about the man who is now the Speaker of the House. Sure. I mean, I think it's telling that um, two of the last three major potential plausible candidates to be House Speaker are from Louisiana, right? Um, the it, like the heavily reactionary, uh, socially extreme um, center of the Republican Party right now essentially is Louisiana. Right. Like the Republican Party is controlled by like deep south ideologues um, who are the most extreme people in the country on both social and economic issues. 
Like people like Mike Johnson are not just against abortion, right? Like Mike Johnson has a trail of op-eds going back to the 1990s, um, arguing against um, things like not just gay marriage, but like decriminalizing um, sex between uh, between same-sex people, right? Like um, he wrote a, an op-ed attacking the Supreme Court decision um, to, to set aside uh, like uh, antebellum, anti-sodomy laws, things like that, right? Um, like these are, these are people who are considerably more socially extreme than I think is generally appreciated right now um, because there isn't a big legislative push to invalidate um, gay marriage statutes right now, um, but it's coming, right? Um, these are people that want to go after birth control. Like uh, these are people that want to impose essentially like uh, Catholic or Protestant tyranny on the United States, right? Just like he's a theocrat. He's a theocrat who runs in elections. Okay? It doesn't make him unusual in the world, um, but that's what he is. And American theocrats, uh, you know, American social conservatives are unique in the world in that they are also like economic lunatics um, who want to destroy the welfare state. Right? Um, so I've said this before, but one, one thing I appreciate about European fascists <laughs> is that they want to leave the health. They, like, they want to leave health care alone, at least, yeah. you know. Um, like if those people get into power, you're like, well, this is terrible for immigrants um, and minorities, uh, but at least you can still go to the doctor. Um, in America, like you, you have a made, you have one of our two major political parties that is captured by, by a group of people who are uh, the hardest right that you can possibly be on our political spectrum on every conceivable issue under the sun. Right? That's Mike Johnson. Um, and I think it's really telling the point of the piece was like, I think it's really telling over the past six weeks, like what is acceptable and what is not acceptable to elected Republicans in the house. Yeah. Most of them didn't actually want to get rid of McCarthy. Okay. Like, so for them, McCarthy was fine. Right. Um, and then when McCarthy was gone, it opened up this Pandora, this Pandora's box of like, okay, what is disqualifying and what isn't disqualifying? Right. Steve Scalise was disqualified because he was too close to McCarthy and McCarthy's compromises with Biden to get budgets passed and things like that. So he was out with the eight hardliners who plunged them into this chaos in the first place. Um, and then they shot down Jordan. Uh, Jordan had there was a lot of pushback on Jordan. Uh, you know, 20 something members voted against him. I think, you know, closer to 67, 60 or 70, like hated him. Um, and from the left, we're looking at it like, oh, wait, they can't vote for Jim Jordan, right? I mean, he was like, he was Trump's lackey. He wanted to overturn the 2020 election results. He's got this terrible scandal in his past with the wrestling stuff. Um, he's a jerk, you know? Um, and when you're trying to sort through like, well, what actually cost Jim Jordan the speakership? It wasn't that he was too extreme. It wasn't that he was a Trump lackey. And it wasn't that he wanted to overturn the 2020 election. It was that people didn't like him, which is completely understandable. Okay, he's like one of the most, like the least likable human beings I've ever watched on television in my entire life. And that includes <laughs> the villains from like every single TV show I've watched. Like I would rather vote for one of the ushers um, from the fall of the House of Usher on Netflix. I'd rather one of those children be the president than Jim Jordan. Okay. But um, at least they're interesting. So... <laughs> So it wasn't anything to do with his extremism, right? It was just they didn't like him personally. He didn't play by their dumb informal rules. Like he tried to leap himself to the head of the pack and they were like, get back, you know, sit back down, Jim Jordan. Uh, we're going to find this other guy who's, who's acceptable to us. And it turns out that the guy that's acceptable to them was a ringleader of the post-2020 election conspiracy. Um, wanted, supported the Texas, do you know what the Texas lawsuit said? 
it was like, well, there's we, we think there's irregularities, so we need to set aside the, re- the election results in these four battleground states until we f- can figure out what's going on here. And while they're figuring out what's going on there, Donald Trump would, would win a second term. Okay, That's the thing that Mike Johnson signed up to do. And when they asked about it in his first press conference, the, one of the first questions he got was like, you know, what about this uh, election conspiracy stuff? They just laughed. They're like, ah, shut up. Yeah, yeah. It literally you know, shut up. Us. That's what they said. Yeah. Shut up. Sit down and shut up. Yeah. Right. And it's like, no, we're not going to sit down and shut up. You just elevated as your leader, like essentially uh, like a bespectacled, better spoken Donald Trump. Um, and I, I find that really disturbing. Um, I think that Mike Johnson is very quickly, if he's not already going to become one of the most unpopular people in the whole country. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, it's disturbing. I mean, it's disturbing, Ben, because you like for those weeks, you know, how many times during the Trump era? Have we all gotten excited? Like maybe the moderates are really going to make a stand here. You know, um, a couple, you know, like twice they did. They really made a stand, right? When they stopped the the repeal of the ACA. Um, I'm trying to think of another one, but not really, right? In the end, the moderates always get rolled. Um, and here the moderates got rolled, but they did so in such an instructive way um, that there is no moderation in the Republican Party about democracy. There is no moderation in the Republican Party about LGBTQ rights, about abortion. They're just not there. Um, and even if there's some members of Congress that that are not personal extremists on these things, they're perfectly fine with elevating extremists to the leadership. Um, because at the end of the day, Mike Johnson probably is a much better representation of where the, where the GOP electorate is than Kevin McCarthy was. Like the GOP electorate has become uh, like one of the most extreme reactionary forces on the face of the earth. Right. And they were being led by this, like, kind of like, well, let's cut some taxes, but otherwise let's get along. You know, like <laughs> uh, look at me, I got the speaker's gavel. I'm really cool. I've wanted this my whole life. I had a book with myself on the cover. See, here we are. Um, and now it's like the Republican voters like, no, I don't want that. I don't want that anymore. I want, I want someone who's like me. I want an extremist, right? Like I want to ban sodomy. Let's ban it. Let's get rid of it. You know, I want the handmaid's tale. Call me commander. Like, um, that's what they want, man. And it's, I feel like this should be a real moment of clarity. If all this stuff wasn't happening in the Middle East, I think that I should be a lot more focused on um, just like, I'm sorry, but the leadership has been aligned with the preferences of the, of the Republican electorate. Those preferences are, are reactionary. They're extraordinarily extreme. Um, and yet they still have a chance of winning next year. Um, and that, that really should scare us. Yeah. No, they, um, yeah, they have a, a chance of winning and that moment should scare us. Uh, that's as good a spot to leave it in that gloom. And, well, let's let's open. Let's close with uh, one uh, David Ferris riff on something else he wrote about, and we'll close with this. Uh, Mike Pence dropped out of the uh, presidential race. Uh, of course, he had no chance of getting. You and I had about as much of a chance of getting the Republican nomination. I think I had a better chance actually of getting the Republican nomination than Mike Pence. Okay, I think if given a choice, MAGA would vote for me over Mike Pence, all right? Uh, I'm probably a more likable guy to go have a drink with than Mike Pence. So therefore, I would have gotten some vote. And no MAGA vote would go for Mike Pence, uh, even though I don't agree with MAGA on anything. So your thoughts on uh, the end of Mike Pence's political, uh, excuse me, presidential campaign? Sure. I mean, to quote, you know, to paraphrase Pulp Fiction, Ben, uh, you've got personality and personality goes a long way. <laughs> Um, and, um, <laughs> Mike Pence does not have a personality. He is, uh, like a wet noodle in a suit 
And um, the the telling thing about Mike Pence dropping out of this race is not that he dropped out. Like, we all knew he was not going to become president. It's that um, all of the advantages of being a sitting or a former vice president and seeking your party's nomination, uh, advantages that we have seen come through every single time a sitting or former vice president has seriously sought his party's nomination, he has gotten it. The only exception to that was Dan Quayle, who was sick in 1996 and dropped out early. Um, and so Pence is the first Veep who wanted to become president in the, in the binding primary era that began in 1972, who has fallen so flat on his face that he hadn't even made it to Iowa. Okay. Everyone else got it, right? Mondale got it. Bush got it. Um, Gore got it. Uh, Biden got it. Um, I'm probably missing one. <laughs> but you get the point, right? Like these people start out with extraordinary advantages in a primary. Um, they have near universal name recognition. Um, they should have the, the loyalty of their of their party's most dedicated voters and activists. Um, and they should have a policy record of years in office, like assisting the president, who will always be popular with your party's base. Um, that should make them not a shoe-in, right? Like Biden had to fight for it. Um, but at the end of the day, Biden's status as Obama's vice president, that took him to the top of the field and he won. And I said that at the very beginning of the cycle in 2019, I was like, you know, to full disclosure, I'm a Warren guy. I want a Warren to win. Um, but Biden's going to be tough to beat because he has these built-in advantages. And none of those things worked for Mike Pence, right? Um, he is such an inept politician um, that, that he, he couldn't even get a teeny tiny little bit of traction. Um, and part of that was because Trump was still in the race, right? It's like, you can't run as the successor to the president when the president is also in the race, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not going to work. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, because he wouldn't like just grant himself magical powers to stop the counting of the electoral votes on January 6th, 2021, he was just dead to the Republican base. That kind of ties into what I just said about Mike Johnson, right? This is where the base is. The base is, uh, let's steal the election. Um, and if you don't want to steal elections, you're not welcome in the Republican Party and you're not going to get the nomination. Bye bye, Mike Pence. I know there's not that much more to it, I don't think. Mm. Yeah, that sums it all up. By the way, I'm such a political geek. Uh, when you threw out that challenge about uh, vice presidents immediately, I go, oh, don't forget Nixon and don't forget Humphrey. Uh, that's how my brain works. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, David. What about Nixon? 1960. Humphrey, 68. Anyway, I'm a weird guy. Well, I so uh, I divide political time into this period, like prior to 72 primaries and caucuses were not binding on the party, right? Beginning in 72, like super delegates aside, it's a whole other story, but the parties essentially decided to let the voters pick the nominee. Right? So even before 72, of course, vice presidents were very competitive in seeking their party's nomination, but their audience was the party bosses, right? The party insiders post 72, the impression that you had to make was on the actual voters in your party. Um, and that was a big change. And we are a real outlier and the amount of power that we give to our voters to pick the party's candidates. Um, so, um, but yeah. And voters still, <laughs> yeah, still complain. They still complain. They still complain. My beloved Bernie Sanders supporters still mad of 2000. The party rigged it. Well, what? <laughs> it's a party primary. It's Sorry. a party primary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you think they're going to make it? Easy for you? Be a Bulls fan in the NBA, all right? And yeah. playing a Bucks. <laughs> you think you're getting any calls in the fourth quarter? Nope. <laughs> okay, you know? Be, it's just like, you know, all 
Bernie Sanders supporters should be required to become Bulls fans to see what it means. Uh, anyway, neither. Here. <laughs> I'll just let it go. Oh, uh, my goodness. All right, David, I know you got a lot to do today. And thank you very much. Uh, every other week on my show, uh, David uh, offers up his thoughts on the political news of the week. And so we'll see you in a couple of weeks. All right. Sounds great, Ben. Uh, look forward to it and uh, have a great weekend, everybody. All right. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 